Coming up on Stu Does America, everything is getting canceled, even Bernie and Biden rallies now. You need to work from home and please try not to make out with as many random strangers as usual. But everything's going to be just okay. Just because you're dying from COVID-19 doesn't mean you can't still reap the benefits of Trump's big tax cut. I mean, you know, at least you can reap them for a little while. We'll tell you about the new proposal. Ross Marchand uh, tries to convince us that while they talk a big socialist game, millennials are actually pretty cool with capitalism. And Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute is here to discuss the very expensive last stand of one Bernard Sanders. Before you forget, uh, click the nearest subscribe button and please rate and review this podcast. Just always remember to wash your hands before typing. It's great. Whatever. Subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash stew and use the code stew because that's how they know that you like this stupid show. Plus, you save 10 bucks and click the bell on YouTube to get notifications for every new video we post. The YouTube page is growing fast, so thank you for that. Technically, I should probably be thanking Google for harvesting all of your most personal information and throwing it into an algorithm that probably recommended this video. But you deserve a little bit of thanks as well. Stu does America. It's a tale as old as time. Deadly virus meets bar pretzel. Bar pretzel meets hand. Hand meets mouth. And then virus and human live happily ever after for the rest of their very short lives. Pop culture is littered with touching stories just like this. Everybody loves a good outbreak story. There was the appropriately named movie Outbreak. Oh, I love the scene where the spit flies through the air at the movie theater. Oh, you are one with the spit as you navigate through all the people. Oh, this makes you feel so sanitary. And then this person over here, she's laughing. She thinks it's funny. And then you go right in there and she dies. That's the way that works. Then there was the fabulous contagion. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. One instant infection. We had a seizure this morning, Beth. She had a history of seizures. No, no, no. Allergies. Gwyneth looks so sick there. I think she might be hitting the goop products pretty hard. That's what happened, boys and girls, when you overdo it on essential oils and lady part candles. Remember that. And it's not just movies. If you go to the app store right now, do it on your phone. What is the number one super duper way to pass a little time for a country facing a pandemic? Plague Inc. And you might think that's a little dark, but I guess it makes some sense, right? The game has risen to the top of the charts because it's in the news everywhere, right? But no, it's been at or near the top of the app store charts for years and years Quote, Plague is one of the most popular iPhone games and has been consistently in the top of Apple's uh, App Store chart since it launched in 2012. It is a simulation in which users play as an infectious disease whose goal is to wipe out the world's population. The game was recently removed from the App Store in China, and its designers were a bit upset because of learning and stuff. Quote, Plague Inc. stands out as an intelligent and sophisticated simulation that encourages players to think and learn more about serious public health issues. <laughs> Look, I have no problem with dark video games, and certainly I have no problem with capitalism. Make your money. But I don't think Plague Inc. Come from endemic games is a way to teach people about how to solve public health issues. If I find out that the master plan from Mike Pence is downloading iPhone games, I'm going to be pissed and we're all going to be dead. 
I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. As sexy of a storyline as a global pandemic might be to Hollywood, when you throw Mike Pence in, you really turn up the heat. Mm-mm-mm. Any hotter, and you'd be too hot for TV. But here's the thing. There are basically no rules for streaming video, so we can give you the completely unedited, no-holds-barred, uncensored, and fully explicit material you've been craving. And here it is. The hottest tax break in America. To help the ailing economy in the middle of the coronavirus scare, the Trump administration is talking about a payroll tax cut. I know, I know, stimulating, is it not? Mm. Sure, the payroll tax cut is being talked about as an economic stimulus in a difficult time. But the truth is, this tax is the devil. This tax should not be cut. It should be brutally murdered. This tax should die an agonizing and painful death at, a, at our earliest opportunity. Forget coronavirus. Infect this tax with high-octane Ebola. What makes this tax so uniquely horrible? I'll give you a few reasons. Number one, it's twice as big as you think it is. You might look at your paycheck and see 6.2% removed from what you've earned. As if that is not enough, the tax is really 12.4%. You pay half and your employer pays half. But in reality, you pay both halves. They're just hoping you don't notice the rest. Your employer looks at how much you cost. They don't say, oh, well, that's other 6.2% doesn't count because I'm paying that tax for them. Mm, that doesn't matter. This is intentionally hidden from you so that you think the tax is half as bad. Separating this tax also makes you feel like your other taxes are more reasonable. If you look at your return and think, oh, okay, well, I paid 29% in income taxes, you might think, eh, maybe that's not that bad. In reality, you're paying more like 41.4%. But most people don't realize they should be adding those together because math is hard. If people realized they were paying that much more, maybe they'd fight a little harder to get those taxes lowered. Number two, it is a regressive tax. Progressive taxes really suck. The more you earn, the higher percentage you pay. But we're all used to that, aren't we? Regressive taxes suck even more. The less you earn, the higher percentage you pay. Well, what sense does that make? For example, if you make 30K per year, you'd probably pay about 12.4% in payroll taxes. If you make 120K, well, you'll also pay 12.4% in income tax. Okay. But what if you make a million dollars? Then you're only paying 1.7% in payroll taxes. Huh? And if you make $50 million a year, you pay 0.03%. This makes absolutely no sense. And the left should hate it too. And they sort of do, I guess. I mean, their fix is just a little different. They want to expand the tax and make everyone pay more. Not really what I had in mind. They would never want to get rid of this tax, though, even though it is regressive. Why? Because of number three. It's designed to make Social Security untouchable. When FDR set up the Social Security system, he went to great lengths to try to make sure we could never get rid of his program, even if we hated it. One of his big advisors quoted FDR's thought process on the tax, quote, we put those payroll contributions there as to give the contributors a legal, moral and political right to collect their pensions and unemployment benefits. With those taxes in there, no damn politician could ever scrap my Social Security program. Those taxes aren't a matter of economics. They're straight politics. Uh, yep. The reason it was separated was to give the people the impression they were putting money into the special fund and they were owed the proceeds. 
Normally, we add new government programs and they annoy us. We pay and pay and pay and we never think we're going to get anything out of them. That's why we oppose them. We give the government lots and lots of money and they distribute it in some crazy way we don't understand. It doesn't seem fair. Social Security is the opposite. It seems like it's just an investment program. But as we all know, it doesn't work like that at all. Unless you're at the end of a gun of a mob boss, you're not supposed to be forced into an investment program. Plus, all of your money has been spent many times over, just like every other crappy government scam. It's this tax being separate that has the American people, including many conservatives, praising Social Security. It's like the term pro-choice. It's a brilliant and misleading marketing scam. We know that Social Security is going to pay out something like $22 trillion more than it takes in. The only way I'm going to approve of a sham like that is if I personally get the entire $22 trillion by next Wednesday. Your move, government. Your move. I could go on forever, but I'm actually supposed to entice you with programming that is going to make you want to watch. So here is sexy Mike Pence one more time. Mm -hmm. But before we leave, let us remember the legendary words of the great philosopher Rahm Emanuel. Who once said, never let a crisis go to waste. He mainly used that in kind of an evil way, but we can use it for good. The coronavirus scare can be the crisis that kills the payroll tax forever. Donald Trump, bring this tax on a trip to Wuhan. Don't wash your hands and fill its lungs with some COVID-19. Whatever you have to do, once and for all, murder this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad tax. Ross Marchand is a contributor to Young Voices and the director of policy at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. His most recent article is out in the Washington Times. Forget the headlines. Millennials are just fine with capitalism. He's also the well-known author of numerous online listicles, his latest being, I can't believe you lost my grandfather's ashes, 50 different ways I fantasized about destroying the life and career of the postal worker servicing me at the counter today. I've just, I, I don't know, apparently you hate the post office. I was told this in advance. So, Ross, thanks for coming on the program. <laughs> thanks. Great to be on your show. I don't hate the post office. I just, I give them tough love. Is that really asking for too much? No, no, no not at all. Uh, you make a, a, an interesting argument here. <laughs> Uh, about millennials, um, and you you summarize it well, the youth are fickle on the hammer and sickle. I want to believe that millennials are don't actually believe in socialism, um, but I'm not sure that it's actually true. Sell me on it, please. Sure. Well, the more polling data I looked at, the more I came to this conclusion that boggled my mind and basically no one who I talked to believes in me. But it seems like the evidence is undeniable. When you ask them specific questions about the free market, do you like the free market? Do you like it when the government tells you what to do? Do you like going to the Department of Motor Vehicles? They always say when grilled on specifics, they do not like the government solutions. So I think they like the word socialism, but when you drill down a little bit, it just does not hold up to scrutiny for them. So, so is it one of these things where it's almost like a rebellious act where you say, okay, you know, everyone says socialism's the worst thing. I'm going to say it's the best thing. Is it that type of thing? Is it, um, uh, is it something where they're looking for something kind of innovative and different. What's the cause for them saying they like socialism in the first place? 
I think it's that it receives a lot of flack as a term over time. And I think that America has really built itself as a foil, and rightfully so, to socialist ideas. That's part of it. Another thing that cannot be overstated is the messenger. Now, look, I worked on the Ron Paul campaign in 2012, and there is endless appeal, counterintuitive appeal, um, to this old guy who's just screaming all the time. Um, and it doesn't matter who it doesn't matter who the messenger is. Um, it could be Ron Paul, it could be Bernie Sanders. Um, but it doesn't matter, right, if it's socialism or radical libertarianism, right? And I say this as a libertarian. If there's an old guy screaming the message, people are just going to go for it. Um, and it's always the same crowd, right? It's young, um, it skews male, um, and it skews secular. And those three sort of dead fast characteristics um, define who is going to go for that brand identity, but not so much necessarily um, believe in the specifics. Hmm. You make a really uh, interesting point about Ron Paul in the article. And it's true. There is there's something likable about that curmudgeonly guy who's just kind of screaming from his porch, get off my lawn and 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 just like is dedicated towards something. And it's not just screaming. It's also the sort of unapologetic nature of it, isn't it? Like the fact that he says, yes, socialism. He doesn't he doesn't shy away from it. You know, Ron Paul did a lot of the same things where he was like, yes, he absolutely were cutting. I remember him saying on the air, we want to, you know, overturn uh, the amendment and get rid of the income tax completely, not cut it. Zero. Right. Like that sort of like hardcore, unrelenting uh, nature is part of the appeal, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And the simpler you are, I mean, the more of an appeal that you have. If I'm going to look, and I'm speaking from a lot of experience here, if I'm writing white papers with these uh, these deep, intricate solutions, who is going to read it is complete and utter snooze fest. If I say simply, and especially if I'm old, especially if I'm over the age of 75, and I'm shouting, and if I have a Brooklyn accent or a Southern accent, in the case of Ron and Paul, if I'm saying it's so simple, all you need to do is implement this radical solution that I am completely transparent about, um, guaranteed that is going to have youth support. Even if when you ask them specific questions, they do not buy into the particulars of the ideology. That's interesting. You know, another one I think you could put in the same, because as you were saying, uh, describing that, I think you could put Ross Perot back in the day in the mid 90s, kind of in that same bucket. He, he kind of came along the same way, older guy kind of screaming at you, saying everything was really simple, kind of in that same bucket. That's interesting. Um, do you think that there is a. Um, we're looking at this election tonight, you know, Super Tuesday. I kind of am looking at this as Bernie's last stand. It doesn't seem like he has enough to get over the, the edge. You, you know, these uh, millennial voters, you've looked at this polling. Is this something that where if Bernie goes away, do they still vote for a Joe Biden? Do they look for a third party? Do they go to Trump? What do they do? I think that whenever people talk about third parties, it's always short lived. It's speaking from a place of anger and saying, look, we never get what we want, so we might as well take our ultimate out act of frustration out on the two-party system and go third party. So they'll talk about it. I guarantee you they'll talk about it for maybe two or three weeks, and then they'll just hold their nose and vote for the lesser of two evils. But such is life in America. <laughs> do, they, do they wind up uh, in the lesser of two evils in their mind? Is this a Joe Biden? Do they, are, they, are they dedicated enough to, to sort of left-leaning politics that they go that way? Or, I mean, you could honestly make an argument that Donald Trump sort of fits your mold as well. Here's a guy who's he's older. He's kind of in your face. And he kind of talks about how, look, let's just shut the border. We got to close the border down. There's bad people coming. He talks about a lot of these things in sort of these basic ways as well. I think it's still Biden because overall, one big overriding factor is that 
youth politics still trends to the left, Mm -hmm. even in terms of particulars. Um, But that's not necessarily, right, the end-all, be-all. I think the end-all, be-all is that they're responsive to capitalism, even if they're not going to abide largely by a conservative candidate. And I think that that, uh, conservatism, unfortunately, um, it waits maybe 10 or 15 years uh, to take hold. And as you get older, you get more conservative. I guess people like me are the outlier. I don't know. It's unfortunate. (laughs) It does seem that way. Uh, We're all outliers here. Um, One other thing you you found I thought was really interesting in these polls was when you asked about socialism and capitalism, a lot of times socialism would win, not necessarily overwhelming with the percentages, but it would be much more favorable than it should be for something that killed 100 million people in the last century. Um, But on the other side, when you ask basically the same question, um, free market economy versus government managed economy, which are certainly very fair ways of describing these philosophies, uh, millennials gravitated towards free market. Is Is it something to do with just messaging or is it deeper than that? I think it has a lot to do with messaging. And if you look at socialism as this kind of version of cuddly capitalism, which, by the way, is a contradiction in terms, right? Mm-hmm. And you say, look, socialism is just something that they have in Norway, they have in Sweden, then people are going to go for it because they look at um, pictures of happy Scandinavians, right? Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is socialism is nothing like that. Socialism is mass murder and socialism is widespread government control and mass misery. And I think that if young people just understood that and we got the framing and the messaging right and we were able to send that message um, to people my age, then there'd be a lot less self-described socialists. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't like to give a lot of hope on this program. It's kind of against the edicts of this. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Okay? There we go. Thank you. It exactly. makes me a lot more comfortable. <laughs> it's a great story. Rosh Marshan is the uh, author of it. It's uh, in the Washington Examiner, or excuse me, Washington Times. Uh, forget the headlines. Millennials are just fine with capitalism. Ross, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks. Great to be on your show. All right. Back in a second. Election 2020, in-depth coverage, the fight for the Democratic nomination. It's Road to Stalingrad 2020 on Stu Does America. Uh, We are well down the road to Stalingrad already. And I know it's an exciting time. It's a big election night, you know, tonight and results are coming in as we speak. I am very, very, very excited about what's going to happen here. And, you know, the more I look at this race, the more I feel like what we know about it is pretty, pretty well defined. Um, first, if you happen to be over 60, I want you to know it's okay to go out and vote today. It's okay to leave your house today, despite all the reports that you've seen all over the media. Unless you're in a very specific set of circumstances, there's no reason to freak out and become a shut in. You might want to become a shut in because Netflix is awesome and that's okay. But I will say, if you want to go out and vote, want to cast your vote today, you can do that. Um, One of the interesting things about this is there's been this media report that's been going around. It's been everywhere. It's been reported like this. This is the New York Post's attempt at it. Um, Let's see that first headline, if we could. Corona uh, CDC urges elderly to stock up on food and stay home amid coronavirus fears. And like if you're, you know, I mean, over 60, over 80, you might think I better not leave the house. They're all referring to this one CDC report, which did say stock up on some food, get some basics ready. But here is the reveal of it, which is during a covid-19 outbreak in your home, in your community, stay home as much as possible and further reduce your risk of being exposed. Do you you understand the difference between those two things during a covid-19 outbreak? An outbreak is specifically defined 
as a local outbreak, um, which was a local um, uh, mass uh, increase in the amount of people infected, uh, suddenly is the word that they used. So if you think about it, if you're in maybe Washington right now, maybe you're in the Seattle, maybe you're around that nursing home that was being affected. Um, maybe uh, you're in uh, New York. It seems like uh, in New Rochelle has a big breakout there. If you're over 60, probably a good idea to stay inside. You have some food. You have some uh, some basics, basic needs. Don't take any extra air travel that you might uh, not need to do. All these basic tips that you could do if there's a localized outbreak. If there's not, uh, you know, do your best. Wash your hands. Don't go on like nine cruise ships tomorrow. Probably a good, safe uh, tip. So just so you know, you can go out to um, uh, vote. However, all the events are being canceled. Bernie and Biden have canceled events um, uh, for the campaign, which is pretty amazing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago and people kind of looked at me like I was crazy when I said this could really affect the vote eventually. If this keeps going down this road, who's going to show up to vote? Do older people say, you know what, I don't want to go out to vote and maybe Bernie has a little bit of luck. Maybe he gets a little bit of a surge. Uh, I wouldn't be it wouldn't be the first time that a socialist lucked out with a bunch of people dying. Uh, it's kind of the standard shtick. So hopefully that does not happen because, A, I don't want people to die. B, I don't want Bernie to luck out. Um, I will say, looking at this field um, and this race the way it is, this is the first time I feel like what we're looking at is a race that is over. A race in which Bernie Sanders has lost and Joe Biden has won. Now, we all know and understand that Joe Biden has an incredible ability to choke and blow this thing, unlike any other candidate we've ever seen. Could he come out tomorrow and, you know, do uh, 45 minutes uh, on stage about the wonderful benefits of goldfish crackers? Yes. And if he does that, I don't know, maybe people will want to vote for him more, to be honest about it. They think he could hold a thought for 45 minutes might actually be a positive for Joe. But it's one of those things where Joe Biden would have to blow this to lose. Let me give you a couple of scenarios here quickly. Um, Nate Silver at 538 did uh, his predictions, and they're as good as, as, as there are out there. Although there's several different sites. The Times has really good ones. Uh, CNN's Harry Enten is really good. Uh, Washington Post's David Byler is really good as well. There's a bunch of good predictions out there. DDHQ is, is very good. Um, but Nate Silver ran the predictions of where are we after next week. Here's the schedule coming up. Tonight we have uh, Michigan, uh, Washington, uh, Mississippi, Idaho, uh, North Dakota, Democrats abroad. I think I think Bernie might even win Democrats abroad. The issue here is he's not really favored in any of these races, uh, at least not heavily. He needs to win Michigan. Uh, it does not look like he's going to. Biden is pretty heavily favored there. Um, and then this day is OK for Bernie tonight. It's OK. He should be able to do pretty well in some of these states. He had his probably his biggest win in the 2016 campaign in Michigan. The question is, what happens after this weekend? Because um, you got Tuesday tonight. You got this weekend. I think you have the Northern Mariana Islands. And I know you guys are all tuned into that one. We'll give it, We have a full show on Friday about the Nor- Northern Mariana Islands primary. Um, but on Tuesday of next week is where it gets so ugly for Bernie. Because you have Florida, Illinois, Ohio, Arizona, Georgia. Five states, big delegate numbers, all bad states for Bernie Sanders. And once we get past this two week period, I'm not sure where he goes after this. Let me give you the three scenarios that Nate Silver uh, kind of posted out there today. If they go exactly as the predictions are on 538.com, if their model works perfectly at the end of this um, week from tonight, 
we will see uh, Bernie Sanders with 1,011 delegates and uh, Joe Biden with 1,402. So he's got a 300 delegate lead. And remember, the, the finish line is 1,991, I think it is, off the top of my head. So big wide lead for um, Joe Biden. But let's just say that Bernie exceeds expectations. What they say here uh, is their middle scenario is Sanders outperforming his polling by 10 points. Now, that's a big outperform. It's possible. We've seen Biden do it recently, but it's, it's not common when you're talking about a a wide sort of uh, race. You know, when you're trying to do multiple states over multiple weeks, not easy to outperform overall by 10 points. You're going to have to do 20 points in some races uh, and maybe zero in others. So a 10 point outperform that only gets him to 1341 to 10 to 1072. Right. So now you're at instead of 300, you're at 270. You know, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's not. It's just not that big of a deal. Sorry, it was 400 to 270. That you're still down by 270 delegates, uh, and he's still at 1341. You're you're in a little bit of trouble there. Now, the last scenario is the most optimistic for Sanders. It would be a big win in Michigan tonight, and then turning that into a big kind of surge going into the next couple of weeks. Even there, he still is down. 1298 to 1115. So you're talking again about 180 some odd delegates. You're still losing. Maybe you're a little bit closer to a um, contested convention, but you're not much closer to a win there. And that's a really big outperform from here until the end of next week. Uh, Silver says that Sanders would still have to win 60 percent of the vote to win the election from there. 60 percent. I just feel like if this is too steep a road, it's not impossible. Biden could blow it with a really bad moment in this debate if they have it. Um, you know, God only knows what could happen. But this is a really uphill road for Bernie. This very well could be Bernie's last stand. Even if he wins, he might be toast. Um, but he's still out there going um, and he's finding people to blame. When you lose a campaign that you're heavily favored in, you kind of get to that point where you're like, uh, I'm going to blame that guy over there in the corner. This time he didn't uh, he, he didn't say specifically which white male he was he was blaming. But I think it's pretty clear who the blame was on. Watch. The short answer is yes, I do. I think women have uh, obstacles placed in front of them that men do not have. Uh, on the other hand, we have made progress in the last uh, 40, 50 years uh, in terms of the number of women who are now in the Congress. You can remember it wasn't so many years ago. A few decades ago, the Barbara Mikulski of Maryland was the only woman in the United States Senate. And we have made some progress. But the day has got to come sooner and later that women can see themselves equally represented in Congress, a half or more of members of Congress, president of the United States, yeah. leaders of companies all over this country. We're making progress, but it's too slow. And we have got to get rid of all of the vestiges of sexism that exists in this country, which is still pretty rampant. Yeah, it's, it is pretty rampant in the Democratic Party because they had a bunch of women to vote for and they didn't vote for any of them. Kind of an issue. Uh, you know, I, look, the idea that you want to have, well, I want to have um, uh, half of the represented, uh, maybe have more than half. Like, what, what are you doing here? The constant pandering is nonsensical. What, what do you care? Why, why do we have to have equal representation of every single race and every single thing? You know what? White males aren't very well represented in lots of things. Uh, I don't care. Right? Who's the best person for the job? That's what you're supposed to think. Um, will Sanders, though, drop out if he loses Michigan? He was asked that question. Watch. 
If you were to lose in the first industrial Midwest state to vote, Michigan, on Tuesday, how serious is that? How damaging? And would you consider dropping out? Well, no, I certainly would not consider dropping out. You know, Chris, media asked you, is this state or that state uh, life or death? I was asked that in Iowa. I was asked that in New Hampshire. We won California the largest state in this country. We are winning among Latino voters big time. Uh, we are one, many, winning among young people. You know, when you talk about the future of this country. Mm. Uh, it's hard to imagine any of these people being the future of the country, isn't it? Uh, Biden uh, is in a, huge, uh, in, a, in a hugely beneficial position uh, at this point. And Bernie, I don't think he's going to drop out. Number one, I don't want him to drop out because I want them to keep fighting at each other this entire time. I think that's a positive thing. I don't see the downside in it, frankly. Number two, though, and more importantly, probably for them, is that Bernie has to look at Joe Biden and say, this is a guy that could break down at any time, whether it's physically, whether it's mentally, whether it's a huge gaffe, whether it's a huge scandal. Who knows what's going to happen? Why would you leave the race now? Stay in the race. See what happens. Maybe you're the guy who steps into this void. I just think that if we're in a normal situation, a normal situation, it's going to be really difficult for Joe Biden to lose this thing, though he is so incredibly capable of doing so anyway. Back in a second. Brian Riedel is the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and member of their Economics 21 team that's dedicated to economic research and innovative public policies for the 21st century. He's also got a new poetry collection hitting bookstores this Friday called Your Policies Suck, Economics Escape You, Go Back to Vermont, and Other Playful Haikus for Bernie Sanders. Brian, thanks for coming on the program. Can't wait to read the book. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. <laughs> you have done more work, I think, than anybody in actually... In a way, you're one of the only people who are actually taking Bernie Sanders' proposals seriously. I think a lot of people look at this and they're like, ah, he's a socialist and he's spending lots and lots of money. You say, you know what, let's actually look at the numbers and figure out what he's trying to communicate here. What made you dive this deep? Well, because Bernie Sanders is a serious candidate for president. And so if there is a movement here that as much as we can dismiss, is very large. Millions of people, uh, including a lot of mathematically illiterate young people, um, it's worth taking seriously and figuring out what would happen if he's elected. Additionally, the best way to show the folly of some of these plans is to take them seriously, because a lot of what Bernie Sanders proposes is just empty rhetoric that falls apart under the first examination. So all you have to do is throw a little bit of basic economics and basic math at his proposals and all the empty promises and rhetoric completely fall apart. You know, it's funny because you watch enough Bernie Sanders, you realize he's kind of just repeating the same five or six things over and over again. It's not he doesn't really go for a guy who's been you know believing this philosophy for 50 or 60 years. He doesn't go all that deep. It seems he kind of has those three or four talking points that make up the vast majority of his proposals and his spending. And and that's about it. Am I right on that? Yeah, I mean, B Bernie Sanders is essentially a conspiracy theorist. Uh, the billionaires are hoarding all the money and keeping everybody poor. And if we tax and regulate the billionaires, we'll all be rich. And there's really nothing beyond that. You know, a little background. 
I spent six years recently working in the Senate as chief economist to Senator Portman. He was on the Budget Committee. Bernie Sanders was the ranking Democrat on the Budget Committee. So I got to see Senator Sanders up close working on the Budget Committee. And I can tell you that Sanders had a reputation for not doing his homework. It wasn't just a matter that people disagreed with him. It was a matter of he just didn't read his policy papers. He didn't have a lot of information. He just repeated rhetoric. He just had a reputation in the Senate as someone who only had a couple talking points, but who could not go any deeper than that because he just doesn't understand public policy. He's almost selling a feeling, right? He's selling the feeling of feeling like you're being taken care of, feeling that everything is going to be okay, feeling that we can all come together and get these easy things done because we're this rich country. Um, you know, but, you know, when you're selling a feeling, a feeling is not going to show up all that well on a balance sheet. Right. And it's also it's it's, it's he's selling populist grievance too. he's selling a conspiracy theory. The billionaires have taken it all. If you just take away money from the billionaires, we can have magic unicorns and fairies everywhere we go. The numbers don't remotely back up anything he's saying, but it's it's cradle to grave security and a blanket with some populist revenge against rich people thrown in for good measure. Mm. Let's go through some of the big the big ticket items here, because this is uh, it, these numbers add up pretty fast. Medicare for all has been the big one. He says that's going to cost between 30 and 40 trillion dollars, which is an amazing thing to actually admit as a candidate. Like he, that's him saying it. That's not us saying it. That's his estimate. First of all, how do you pay for something like that? And second of all, is 40 trillion even a realistic estimate? To put $40 trillion in context, the entire federal budget is projected to be $60 trillion over the next 10 years. So you're increasing federal spending by 67% (laughs) right there before you've done anything else. There is no $30 to $40 trillion tax hike to pay for this, and Sanders hasn't even tried. When he puts out taxes to pay for Medicare for All, they usually add up to about $17 trillion. And that's using his own rosy math, which completely overinflates the numbers. So even by Sanders' own numbers, he cannot pay for half of Medicare for All. Um, And it's because, you know, when people say, well, other countries pay for it, other countries don't do what Bernie's proposing. They don't do anything remotely as generous, remotely as universal, nor did they try to nationalize a healthcare system that was 20 percent of GDP. There's no way to pay for what Bernie's proposing. Yeah, it, that, that's uh, an interesting part of this, because a lot of times he'll just kind of cite it's like Norway and Denmark and he'll just throw these country names out there. And I was like, well, those seem like nice places. So, I mean, I guess that's OK. The average person, I don't think, knows that these are different systems. I mean, you know, and they also involve very high taxes on not just the wealthy, but the middle class, don't they? Yeah, that's the key point of Europe. Not only are their health systems smaller to begin with than than what we're going to be nationalizing, but Europe funds its its systems through broad-based payroll and value-added taxes, which are basically national sales taxes. Mm-hmm. The U.S. already has the most progressive top-heavy tax code in the entire OECD. Europe funds socialism through the middle class. If America wants a European system, we're going to have to fund it through the middle class. And it's going to be even more expensive than Europe because a lot of what Bernie's proposing, Europe doesn't even do. That's what really hits you. I mean, like he's describing countries that don't exist with tax systems that don't exist and there's no way to pay for it. I want to go into a little bit on his uh, jobs plan here because this one fascinates me. Mm -hmm. 
I know <laughs> if someone says to you, you have a guaranteed job that gives you not only a cost and it also gives you a real um, vision of what your day is going to be like. I know if someone tells me I got a guaranteed job, I'm barely showing up. I'll be lucky if I if, if I even if I even put on pants, let alone put on a suit to do this show. Um, I'm wondering if there is a because um, you because his estimates it's something like thirty trillion dollars for this job program. Can you explain the job program and then because that thirty trillion to me seems awfully low. It doesn't seem like in reality their estimates are going to come anywhere close to reality. This is one more example of when we say not even Europe does this. No country in Europe does anything remotely like what Sanders is proposing. What he is saying is that anybody in America who wants one can get a full-time job paying $15 an hour plus full benefits funded by taxpayers. Again, no one does anything remotely like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You not only will get everyone who's unemployed or out of the workforce joining, but... There's 66 million workers who are currently earning less than $15 an hour. If even half of them join the system, you you get a cost of $30 trillion <laughs> over over 10 years. And even, again, that only assumes half the people who would benefit join. It assumes that other people don't just say, hey, perfect job guarantee. I can't be fired. I'll take it. It doesn't even include the cost of a recession where more people would join. So $30 trillion over 10 years is the low end. And think what that would do to the productivity of the economy to take tens of millions of people out of the productive private sector and put them into essentially government make work jobs that they can't be fired from productivity would plummet. Economic vitality would plummet. We'd go into a recession, which is why no other country does anything like this. Yeah, it's an insanity. It's insanity. It's, it's just nationwide insanity. Um, I'm, I'm curious, too, as, as to how he's going to pay for this. You estimate all of his plans. Uh, that's including just counting $30 trillion for the job plan, which I think would be much higher, uh, as a total cost of $97.5 trillion dollars over uh over a decade and again you know you you have you're not just some you're not you're not me you're not some schlub with a spreadsheet like you're you're you've got a big time resume you've even written for this in left-wing publications we're forced to take bernie seriously so this is something that's really well proven out and the stats have, have not been shown to be wrong him as far as him trying to pay for all this though it doesn't he doesn't even like Elizabeth Warren tried. Right. She came out and she said, here's my plan. I'm not raising taxes. And everyone basically laughed her out of the room. Bernie, for some reason, is able to get away with this without even saying what the plan would be to pay for this. How much of it can he does he say he can pay for and how optimistic are his projections? Bernie put out a report about two weeks ago that said, I can pay for my entire agenda. Well, the taxes he had added up to $42 trillion over 10 years out of a $97 trillion spending tab. I see a gap there. So huh? even by his own numbers, he doesn't even pay for half. And the reality is even the $42 trillion was based on virtually no economics. It didn't even pass the laugh test. You know, for example, uh, Sanders included energy taxes that are greater than the entire profits of the energy industry and the entire market capitalization of the entire industry, <laughs> while at the same time projecting that these taxes will create 20 million new energy jobs. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that's just making up numbers. He assumes, he actually assumed that $40 trillion in taxes would create 
so much additional economic growth that three three trillion dollars in growth revenues would come in from doubling taxes. <laughs> Most of the economics would be laughed at by anybody who's had a high school economic course. He basically just made up numbers. Um, I mean, it was, look, I've worked on presidential campaigns. I know that they will sometimes exaggerate an estimate here or there. But what Sanders doing is doing is just completely laughable. They're just throwing out random numbers. You've been all over the place talking about this stuff since, uh, you know, for the last couple of years um, as Sanders has risen up. You've talked to people from both sides of the aisle. This has probably been a pretty interesting picture as to how people react to these things. What do you see? I mean, do you think, can Sanders pull this off? Do people eventually come around uh, to his way of thinking? Is this the future of the Democratic Party? Well, what's interesting is when I talk to public policy experts on the left, they say, of course, Sanders doesn't make any sense. Of course, his numbers don't add up. Of course, none of this could ever be implemented. It's completely unworkable. But what they say is, well, but at least he's a fighter who will fight as hard as he can. Uh, and so their support for Sanders is strategic. He's a fighter. But no, his plans aren't serious. We're never going to have single payer socialism. When you deal with the rank and file millennial supporters of Bernie, the true believers, there's really no there there. Um, mm -hmm. You try to run them through the numbers. They tell you that the numbers are a conspiracy. Uh, they tell you that this is all a corporate conspiracy. We're lying to you. The Congressional Budget Office is part of the conspiracy. The entire economics profession is part of the conspiracy. Uh, the field of math is part of the conspiracy. And then they just kind of default back into talking points. Well, Europe does it. Why can't we? Well, no, Europe doesn't. The true believers really take this seriously. Unfortunately, people who own a calculator know better. <laughs> well, math has always been a conspiracy to me, and now <laughs> we know that it's true. Brian Riedel, Manhattan Institute, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program and actually giving us some sensible analysis of Bernie. Thank you very much. All right, back in a second. If you would like to subscribe to Blaze TV, go to blazetv.com slash stew. If you use the promo code stew, you're the best person on earth because that's how they know that you like this stupid show. And I will say you also will save 10 bucks, which is a nice thing as well. Uh, so many of you have taken time to do things like subscribe and rate and review and all of that. Uh, and it makes it so the show continues. Uh, seriously, I really appreciate it because... It's one of those things that, you know, without you kind of taking those extra moments and clicking subscribe and writing, it's great, whatever, whatever you're able to do, uh, it really does help a lot and uh, makes it seem like, hey, maybe conservatives don't mind laughing. Maybe conservatives want some smart analysis. Maybe conservatives want some smart analysis, stupid laughs, and only occasionally the opposite. Uh, so please continue to do that. Uh, by the way, we did the, um, uh, the other day we did a, a mock-up of a fake T-shirt that said, sorry, I can't make it, um, self-quarantined. And so many of you kind of commented on this, they actually made the shirt. So it's there if you want it. Please, please go check it out. Uh, BlazeTV.com uh, uh, is the place to go subscribe. StuDoesMerch.com has all the merchandise from the show with all the dumb little slogans that we say over and over again. And I do really appreciate checking it out. Uh, I know I had to get the t-shirt made because I know my wife must have one. She self-quarantines herself all the time. That's why we never make it to your party. I'm sorry. 